part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've been going through uh, kind of methodically verse by verse through uh, Romans chapter 8. We come to a place where probably one of the most familiar uh, verses out of that is, is found in this text this morning about uh, don't all things kind of work out together for good? And we've kind of throw different parts of it around, and we have all kinds of different twists on that. And it's uh, this morning we're going to find that it is a great, great promise. It is tremendous promise. And at the same time, folks, it's um, I almost brought a, I have a machete at home. I don't have a sword. I wish I had a sword at home. Uh, but, I, it's, you know, so I could have the double-edged side and really do this illustration well. But I, I decided to leave the machete at home. Uh, my wife's eyes got this big when I was going to carry it out this morning. And, and because I wanted to, you know, a machete is great. A sword is great. You know, if you're, when you're out there chopping through the, the, the jungle or something, it's a tool to be used that is great for that effect. At the same time, you can really injure yourself. And, folks, that's how the Word of God is. It, the Word of God truly is. There's this blessed Word that God has given us to give us direction. And, and the Bible tells us that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. In Hebrews, he tells us that. In Second Timothy, it says, can you learn to make sure that you can handle this Word correctly. And, and if there's ever a place that we need to kind of know that truth and really let it sink in, it, it's right here with Romans 8.28. I think with great intention, with really great intention, sometimes I throw this, we throw this verse out there in the midst of times of uh, people that we love and we see them hurting and uh, we say, well, you know, all things are going to work out together for good. Well, there's a measure of that that is true as we'll get into this verse and we'll see. But also times we kind of say, well, you know, it, it, we give this flavor that it's almost that it's good that it happened. And we're going to see that that's not really the truth. And with great intentions, we want to give ministry to these people, and yet at the same time, it can be salt in the wounds, I promise you. Never our heart's intention to misguide somebody with this great truth. And yet we have to know this, it's a sword, guys. And mishandled, misinterpreted, miskind of guided, it really can go out there, and it can bring great, great pain to people. I mean, you're sitting there in a point of misery. I mean, your whole world is falling apart. And somebody comes up and tells you that it's good. Number one, we have to know the wisdom of that. Number two, is that what it actually says? And so this morning, we're going to go through and we're going to see two things that this verse does not say that sometimes we kind of give kind of an allusion to. And then two things that it really does say. And I, I promise when it's all said and done this morning, my prayer, my hope, is that you will see it even more powerful, more promising than ever before, that it really is a deeper promise than, than something that's just, hey, take it in stride, kind of, you know, you know, come on, buttercup, strengthen yourself up and, you know, pull yourself up from the bootstraps, kind of, it's not that mentality. It's not looking to you to become a stronger person. It's looking at the finished work of Christ and how we can hide ourselves in that and then we can have a promise that is not temporal but one that is eternal. But here's the thing, guys. You and I, living in this world, we're always going to be thinking more temporal than eternal. Think about this. You know, our our mindset is always going to be focusing on on the latest win of our team, the latest defeat of our team. Uh, If we got, you know, good things going on at work, if bad things are going. And and our mindset, even though we know how that God has made this great eternal promise to us, the, the mindset is to live in the moment. 
or maybe the day, or maybe the week or the month, and, and we go here. And God is forever, forever trying to stretch us out to an eternal perspective. When we open up Genesis, when we read all the way through Revelation, God is trying to give us that eternal perspective. Paul here in Romans 8 is trying to give us an eternal perspective. When it says in verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, well, I don't know about you, but last week I kind of felt some of that condemnation. You know, I, I felt like with some of my sin and some of my poor decisions that, you know, that, that's really condemning. And it's only when I have that eternal perspective, when I only see what God is doing in the eternal perspective, that I can say, you know, that is right. Because I am hid in Christ Jesus and I've been clothed in his righteousness, that's an eternal truth. And yet, here's what we do with tragedy in our life. We try to excuse, explain, handle tragedy in one of three different ways. Number one, and probably the most often, emotionally. That somehow, God, you must just be mad at me. Somehow I deserve this. Somehow, God, you you have forgotten. You know, that's what David said. God, have you forgotten to to give me grace? Have you forgotten to answer my prayer? Have you forgotten to, to, to let me see your face today? It can happen. If it can happen to a man after God's own heart, it can happen to us. And so oftentimes when we have tragedy in our life, we, we deal with it on a very emotional basis. We're emotional beings. God created you that way. So it's not a fault that we are emotional. But this is one of those things that even though tragedy impacts us emotionally, probably not the best way to handle it. Uh, another way we do is, is philosophically. There's this guy, Epicurus, a long time ago. He was a, a, a philosopher. He thought deep thoughts. And he was one of the first ones to come along with this kind of linear thinking or logical thinking or philosophical thinking. If God really can, if he really is a sovereign God and he really is over all things and he doesn't keep evil and hurt from coming to my life, then he really must not be a loving God. Or if he's not able to do that, then, you know, and he began to go down this trail of, okay, God must be this, God must be that. And he was kind of doing this philosophical kind of wrestling in his mind, trying to figure out who God was. He was trying to put God in a box, trying to figure out through man's terms who God is. And so there's going to be times in our lives when tragedy comes in our lives, folks, that our first kind of knee-jerk reaction is that of the emotional. God, why me? Remember the three questions last week? Why me? Why this? And why now? I mean, those come so naturally when tragedy hits our life. So emotional, philosophical, well, what about biblical? <laughs> you know, do, do we run to God's word? Do we run to the cross? Do we see these promises of God? That's where God would want us to go. Uh, not that we aren't emotional creatures, not that we don't have a mind and mentally we kind of you know, have all these philosophical thoughts, but he wants to bury us in truth because that's what Christ says. You know, the truth sets us free even in a time when we're having a lot of misery, when there's a lot of catastrophe, when there's a lot of things in our life that seemingly are falling apart. God says, this truth it's going to set you free. Maybe not free from all those circumstances, but certainly from this you know, kind of thinking that God has turned his favor, that somehow God has turned away from you. So let's go to the God's word this morning. We're going to read Romans 8, 28 through 30. We're going to find that this is not to be separated from what we've already covered in the last couple of weeks. We'll come back and see that it's linked to that. But let me read through Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who call according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When we read that passage, most of the time we forget about verse 29 and verse 30. But I promise you, it's a package deal. Paul's thinking and his thought process is, is very inclusive there. He's putting all those thoughts together. And, and to separate verse 28 from verse 29 and 30 really doesn't give us the full effect. And, and yet here's what we often do. Is we, we often kind of reduce down. And I realize, how many of y'all are great at memorizing Scripture? Yeah, like one or two hands. Most people are going to like, no, not me. And so well, here's what we do. Uh, kind of just out of pragmatism, just out of the practical basis, we, we kind of get a verse that we really like, and then all of a sudden we kind of reduce it down to our own kind of verbiage, and then sometimes we kind of shorten it so that we don't live, you know, so that we don't have to remember like the whole thing. And this is a verse that we do that a lot to, Romans 8, 28. And, and so the end thing is kind of, you know, just, okay, all things work together for good. And that is not what this verse is saying. I mean, there's a, there's a part of that that is true, but that is not inclusive of all the truth of that. So this morning, let's look at two things that this passage is not saying. Okay, first thing, Paul is not saying, and Paul is just simply writing down what the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to do. Not in a, uh, you know, he's not listening and then writing down. This is using the personality of Paul and then Paul and, and, and all of his humanness, but at the same time inspired by the Holy Spirit. We can say that this is God's word and not just Paul's version. And the first thing that God tells us here is uh, all things are not good. What this passage does not say is, is that all things are good. Paul is not trying to tell us that in every trouble there is a silver lining. Have you ever heard that before? Hey, in, in all bad things there is a silver lining. Have you ever said that to somebody? Somebody say that to you? Believe it or not, that's not what Paul is saying. This is not what God is saying. Folks, there are some things that will happen. There's some tragedies in this world. There isn't a silver lining. I'm not trying to burst your bubble. I'm just trying to be biblical and authentic to the word of God this morning. And yet when we're going through tragedy, somehow we want to have this silver lining. We want to know, hey, this isn't just wasted emotion and hurt and grief in our lives. And so, so somehow, God, aren't you just going to kind of, you know, aren't all things really good because you're going to eventually always kind of direct it that way? Now, God is the first one to tell us not all things are good. Folks, I promise you, disease is not good. Death is not good. Broken relationships are not good. And God doesn't kind of play around with your emotions and my emotions saying, well, you know, no matter what you're going through, all things are good. No, they're not. Now, the biggest question is why? And this is where we, we, we've got to come out and see this in context. Or, or we're kind of going down this trail that Paul's thinking that, uh, you know, that we're going to just go into a refrain of the sun will come out tomorrow. Everybody's seeing. That's not what he's saying here, folks. Remember what we saw in the last couple of weeks Remember Romans 8, verse 20. It said that futility was put upon creation. Remember? That when the fall came, when man was disobedient to to God's will in the garden, and the fall came, that a futility, a brokenness, a a, a grieving, and then the, the Bible used a word. Paul began to use a word that he uses three different times. Remember what that word was? Groaning. 
He said, now creation, because of this futility, because of this brokenness in this world, a futility exists, and this futility, when it works itself out in your life and my life, it comes out as a groaning. So he said, creation is groaning. Then he went on in verse 26, and he says, okay, or uh, a couple of verses later, he says, humanity is growing, groaning. Can you identify with that this morning? that there's a futility about your life, even though you're a Christian, you may have put your faith and trust in Christ, would you still say that you're facing a certain futility of this world? I mean, are you hoping that this is heaven? No. I mean, we we aspire, we we think that there's got to be something better. And in the absence of sin, but as long as there's sin here, even though it has been paid for in Christ, we're still in a world of sin. And that's why it says even creation is groaning. Mankind, humanity is groaning. But remember the great promise that we saw in verse 26, 27, that the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is groaning on your behalf to the Father, praying God's will for your life. So we have this futility. It it, kind of goes into this groaning, and, and we see this. And we remember that in this moment of weakness, the Bible said that the Holy Spirit is helping us. Uh, let me tell you about that word weakness real, real quick. Kind of borrowing from last week. When it says that in our moment of weakness, the Holy Spirit is groaning for us, do you identify that as really troublesome times in your life? I mean, a moment of weakness. When, what do you identify weakness with? Man, we think of that tragedy. Hey, when I was going through that, when I was going through this. And we see little dates on the calendar. We see these little times on the calendar that we go, man, I was really down at that time. Hey, I lost my job. Hey, I went through a divorce. And we look at those times of our lives when there was great tragedy. And we go, man, that was a time of weakness. Do you know what that scripture actually uses that word for? All of this life, this life here on earth, all of this life is a moment of weakness. Paul, not trying to be pessimistic, trying to be realistic. He says, guys, right now, we have the futility of this world. Why? Because it is still a world of sin. See, that last song that was saying, well, what a wonderful job you you did, and and the ladies did. Christ has put death in a grave, and he has conquered that. But have you and I realized the fullness of that? Uh, Do these bodies know the, the full understanding of that victory yet? No, and that's why he said in those previous verses, he said it's kind of like birth pains. We know it's coming. Right now it's painful, but there's this joy that's going to be coming. Does that give you a perspective this morning of where Paul's coming and the proper foundation of this text? People coming up to me all the time, Bobby, well, well why did this happen? And sometimes there's not a logical answer. There's not a sympathetic answer. There's not a a biblical answer besides this simple thing, because of sin. I'm going, what, because of my sin? No, because we live in a world where things are broken, futility, groaning. And until the day of our final glorification, until heaven, folks, you and I are going to be battling that. Futility, wrestling with the promised glory. One day that promised glory is going to come. For those who have died in Christ, they, they know that glory. I mean, maybe not even the fullness of that glory yet, because uh, but some of that's going to come in the fullness of all of time. But I guarantee you, those that are residing in heaven now, that they know much more of this 
glory than you and I know of this glory. But we're still here. And we have glimpses of it. We see it. We, we can taste it. It's kind of like going to Sam's and you go around and they give you this little thing and it makes you want to buy the 20-pound bag. Because it's like, man, the little foretaste of this was good. Man, that's the best cheesecake I've ever had. So you go in there and spend $30 on cheesecake. Why? Because that little foretaste, that little sample, you say, man, this is what I want. They're very smart in their marketing. Well, in a way, that's what God has done. He said, here we have a foretaste. Well, we have a little sampling of what is to come, and yet it's not the fullness until that day comes. All we have is the little sample. So, so Paul is going through these things. He says the first thing, look, all things are not good. Death is not good. Disease is not good. Broken relationships are not good. We can go mount a long list of things that are not good. But then he goes on and he says the second thing, or actually we can put it, pose it as a second thing that he's not saying in this passage. And that is that all things work out for good for everyone. Even if you are ready to take that first truth and say, okay, look, I, I, I promise, Pastor, I really do believe that not all things are good. But doesn't God, just because he's a, just this benevolent God, this loving God, does, doesn't he work all things to good for, for everybody? Can't we really say that maybe there really is this silver lining in all of tragedy? No, we can't. Paul's very directed in who this is directed to. Look again, Romans 8.28. He's going to use the word those twice. And he's going to use that as a directional word, giving us a direction to who this is uh, are written to. And you would already guess it's written to the Roman church and to Christians. But Paul clarifies that once again in verse 28. And we know that for those who ha- love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Two, two clarifications. God is not working all things for good for everybody out there. Folks, this is a, a, a select group. This is the redeemed. This is the called. Those who love God. And when we first hear that, because we live in such a hypersensitive world where one person is not supposed to have something that somebody else doesn't have and, and you know, everybody's supposed to be fair, we kind of get this, you know, well, I don't know if that's really kind or nice. Well, does it matter that it's biblical? <laughs> I mean, do you not believe that there are some things that God has done for Christians who have put their faith and trust in him? Folks, if not, it's just this vanilla thing that's out there. No, this is only for those who are in Christ. This whole chapter, for those who are in Christ. Uh, several years ago, we went to Europe, and we were traveling around, and uh, one of our stops was London for about three or four days, and we went to Buckingham Palace, uh, where the, one of the many you know, castles, I guess, or residents of the Queen. And, and this was my view. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, we went there and it was beautiful. And, and this is actually where we stood for all the, the processional and all the things that they were doing there. And, and, and there's something very obvious about that picture. <laughs> I'm on the other side of the gate, okay? Now, I want you to know I was not offended, nor was my family offended whatsoever, that we did not get to go in that gate. I'm not royalty. I'm not a prince of this. I'm not the king of that. I'm not, you know, she's not the princess. Of, she's my princess. But she's no, you know, it's not this other princess. And, and so there's, I didn't expect all of a sudden Queen Elizabeth to go out there and go, Bobby, come on in. I, I had no offense that I was outside the gate 
because I was not a part of that royal family. We went down the street a little bit to 10 Downing Street. That's where uh, the prime minister lives. This was our view of, of their White House. Again, we're on the other side. Folks, I wasn't a fan. I didn't stomp off and go, you know those British, they are so rude. And was, uh, we are never coming back to England. Because they're the most rude people. Because, I mean, I, everywhere we wanted to see, they had bars up. Folks, we need to get over the super sensitivity. We are to, to be loving to all people. But, folks, when, when there's a promise in the Bible that is for Christians, folks, please, please don't, don't spread that out for all of humanity because it's one of those things we don't want to give a false hope there. We're not trying to be, you know, say, okay, we're better than you because every promise that we have is because we're in Christ, not because we have achieved something. If it's on our shoulders, then we could go around braggadociously. We could go around and say, yeah, I'm in. Part of the royal family. You want to know how many good things I did this week? But we had nothing to offer the king. We had nothing to offer this God except for our sin. And he gave us Christ. And he gave us life. Life abundant and life eternal. Everything we have, we have as Christians. We have because we're in Christ. So Paul here is, is not trying to say, hey, everything is good. And he's not trying to say everything works out for good for everybody. If people are not in Christ, it, 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 we really can't apply this promise to them. Now look what it says in verse 29 and 30. He explains it a little bit more. You and I, we're living in this broken world. We're subject to the futility of this world. But look what he begins to explain. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we come upon a passage like that, and and there's a lot of times that we get spiritually lazy and we see more of a theological kind of uh, depth there. And we go, okay, let me just get back to the practical. Don't be scared of those theological words. When you start seeing predestination and when you see justification, when you see those different things, don't shy away because that's what God is saying. That this is who we are. And, and folks, it's not that we're doing this for ourselves. Notice the number of times that Paul is using in verse 29 and verse 30, he. Now again, I, I love the ESV version, but part of the ESV version that I do not like is that they don't capitalize uh, references to God. And so you're going to see a little he there, a little H for he, but it's talking about God. And all of these things, he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified, he glorified. But those words do not apply to the masses of this world. It's for those who are in Christ. Not because we're snobbish, not because there's any merit in us, not because we were better Simply, we, we, God has revealed to us his glory. He's revealed it to us in Christ. And, and we trust it that Christ paid a price for us that we could never pay for, pay for ourselves. It's the only difference between us and, and another person walking this world that's not a Christian. Not a moral goodness. I, I promise you, I can find five morally better people than a lot of Christians that I know. That, you know, the people that are not Christians. They have not put their faith in their trust. And morally, you're talking about just straight arrows. You're talking about people that are just walking a, a walk of even love and, and sacrifice. It's not about us. It's about him. 
And this passage is one of the most powerful in all of God's word, uh, not because of, of what it is excluding, but because what God has, has called us to. And he says he's working things for good. Even the called are going to fight hardship in their life. Even the Christian, even the, those that he predestined, those that he's justified. And in this way for glorification, in this traveling, folks, we are going to hit some times in our lives that are really unexplainable. It's not going to measure with our earthly understanding. So if this is not saying that all things are good, and I hope that you see that in the Word, and that this is not a promise for everybody, he's not saying everything is always going to work out for everybody, what is it saying? Two things, and then we'll close this morning. First, here's the promise. If you're in Christ this morning, you put your trust and faith, not just you got wet, not just that you filled out a card one day, not at VBS, you raised your hand, but you truly have put your whole faith of being right with a righteous and holy God in the work of Christ and him alone. If that's who you are this morning, you're, you're in Christ, you're a Christian, here's the promise that God has for you in this great text. He promises you that he's always at work in your life. Always at work in your life. See, when tragedy hits, sometimes we wonder if God's working in our life at all. Or is this part of, you know, God, is this kind of a, a temporary retribution for, for something? You know, I, I know in heaven, you know, that everything's going to be perfect, but, you know, is it because I, I did this? And so you're kind of getting back and, you know. Folks, in the darkest days of your life, and I say this so respectfully, You, if you're in Christ, you can know that, that, that God is always working in your life. What is he working toward? Two things. His glory and your good. In the midst of the darkest moments of your life, God is still working for his glory. His glory is everything. He will not surrender his glory. Please get this. He will not surrender his glory for your happiness. And I, I know a world that is so centered on self, and a world that, you know, we just expect the world to kind of make us happy, that kind of comes as a rub, it comes as a frictional fault against us. But I promise you, holy God is not going to surrender his glory for your happiness. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but, but I want you to know that, 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 that God's glory is everything. But, but take heart in this. As God is working for his glory, he's also working for our good. If you're in Christ this morning, he's working for our good. Remember when we heard about, uh, when we read about the Holy Spirit interceding for us last week? And said, he said he's praying God's will. That's what the Holy Spirit is praying for in your life right now. In this groaning that's even too hard for words to understand, the Holy Spirit right now is praying as an advocate for you, interceding for you, for two things, for God's glory in your life and for your good. He's praying in agreement to that for your life. As we said last week, isn't it great? Right here in Romans, we find out that the very Holy Spirit within us, God within us, is interceding for us. And then a couple of verses later, he says that Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. I mean, you've got the whole Trinity working for you for two purposes, for God's glory and for our good. And one of the theological words that, that we use that I don't know that we're ever going to be able to have a great comprehension of, a full comprehension of, is God's sovereignty. 
And when we read about God's sovereignty, it means basically, I mean, we could give some really deep theological terminology there, but basically it means that, that God is in control and he's the ultimate authority of all things. He's given you and I free will. You and I can make choices. We're not robots down here. But ultimately, even that was deemed in, you know, by God in his sovereignty that he would give us free will. There was not a book of how to be God that God had to open up to page 37, paragraph B, and says, okay, if you're going to be God, you can be very powerful, but you have to give your creation free will. God does what God wants to do, and if God does it, it's the right thing to do. And God, in his wisdom, and in the wonder of it, he said, okay, I am a holy, sovereign God. I am over all things, and yet I'm going to make this creation, and I will give them free will. And we come upon verses like... Uh, Uh, Revelation 21, when it says God is above all things, he's before all things, he's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, he's immortal, he's sovereign God. And yet that's a part for us to really kind of, it's hard for us to comprehend. Okay, God, if you know all things, if you're over all things, we kind of become like the philosopher uh, Epicurus and say, okay, God, then why don't you just work everything out? I mean, have you ever had that thought? That God, if you truly are loving, if you truly are good, if you truly are, you know, if you're against evil, then God, why don't you just work everything now for my good? Not just an eventual good. Every single moment, why don't you just work that for good? And it's hard for us to comprehend the, the ways of God. Paul even talks about this a little bit later on in Romans. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Have you ever been there in life and you really did just have to surrender to his sovereignty? There was no knowledge. There was nothing. You could not add one and one. You could not connect the pieces. The puzzle just did not seem to fit in your life. You're going, why me? Why this? Why now? I mean, those questions came so honestly And you weren't turning away from God. You were just turning to God, asking those questions. So there's hope there. That the sovereign God, nothing is happening there that that God is is not aware of. So Bobby, why doesn't he just work everything out? He already gave us the answer. Because we're in a futile world. Sin temporarily, temporarily is breaking down things. Just like this broken body. More and more age, more and more, uh, you know, things breaking. Carly and I were talking about the other day. We're going, man, if this is the 50s, I don't know that we want to see the 60s and 70s. Man, we're, we're, we're picking up speed here. It's the futility of this life. And he begins to talk about this futility. And, and, but I, I want you to understand this. In the midst of this futility, God is working and he's working for our good. But his definition for good and and our definition of good are are two different things. Honestly, honestly, just be honest with yourself. You don't have to be honest with me. Honestly, in your mind, do you equate your good with your happiness as opposed to your holiness? I mean, be honest. If there was a bullseye of what God is aiming for, 
If there was just, okay, God is back there and he's in the heavenlies, he's a sovereign God and he has purpose for our life and he's kind of aiming things. What is bullseye? And most of us, because we have this very human condition and we're also getting this external factor of this culture that said it's all about you and it's all about you being happy. Honestly, a lot of times away from the biblical truth, Many of us would say, you know, I, I just, you know, when God's working all things for you either for good, I think it's going to be the things that make me happy. And, and I can promise you this. I don't understand all the things of God, how unsearchable his, his treasures, his riches, but I know this. God's bullseye of working good in your life is not your happiness. It really isn't. It's your holiness. And that's where verse 29 comes in. That's why we can't separate verse 28 and and what God is doing, working together for good for those Christians uh, from verse 29. We have to be able to see that God in verse 29 is telling us what what this bullseye is. Look what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Do you think becoming Christ-like is always going to be happiness? Because what, happens, what has to happen in, in order for, for you and I to become more Christ-like in, in the way that we live, the way we think, the way that we process? It means that there's a whole bunch of things that God has to strip away. Do y'all ever battle with pride? Yeah. And yet, Paul will tell us in Philippians 2 that we are to have the mind of Christ. If you go look at what it says in Philippians 2.5, it says, Let this mind, which is in Christ Jesus, be yours. And then he begins to describe the most humble of of attitudes. Well, I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, (laughs) that's my goal. I mean, that's what I would love, but I I fight that. And especially, you know, in, in, in the most intimate of settings. How many of you have ever been driving down the road and somebody, you know, they either get in your lane, they cut you off a little bit too fast, they do this, that, and the other. And let's just say that it, it, it raises your ire a little bit, your anger. Anybody ever have that happen? Yeah. And, and, and I am a fool. I am a total fool. I, confession is good for the soul. I'm a total fool. I mean, it wasn't even just a couple of weeks ago. You know, this fool was endangering my family. So what do I do? I get right back on, you know, I'm right behind him. Like, give me a little taste of his own medicine. And my wife goes, Bobby, you don't even know that it was not intentional. You don't even know him. He could have a gun. She starts going down the list of the things that could really happen there. And I'm going, but you don't understand. It's a man thing. It's a man thing. It's not a Christ thing. And so if we're going to become more Christ-like, maybe there's going to be things in my life that God is working for good, not good being happiness, but good for holiness. And he says, okay, Bobby, I'm going to humble you because I want you to have a spirit of humility. So I'm actually going to humble you in in this situation. I'm going to see humbled so that you can understand Christ-likeness. Folks, it comes with everything when we are unlovely and have a hard time loving for others. The Bible tells us in, in 1 John 4, 19, that to have this love of others, that we don't even love God if we don't love others. Well, I'm not there yet. There, there's some people, I can be real spiritual and say I love them, but I'll tell you right now, I don't like them. 
And, and yet we have this call to be Christ-like and to be loving to these people. Forgiveness. We can go to Colossians 3. We can go to Ephesians where it says, okay, you forgive as you've been forgiven. I haven't mastered that. You probably haven't mastered that. There's a part of that that God is still working on us in this Christ-likeness. So this good that he's always working toward isn't flowers and banquets and sweet music. Sometimes it's friction in our lives. And it's the ripping away of self and pride and those things that would keep us from being Christ-like. I mean, the ultimate thing, guys. Here, here's the ultimate decision you and I have to make. We have to make it kind of in a, in a big picture, but we also have to make it every single day. Uh, what is going to be your goal tomorrow morning when you wake up? Christ-likeness or happiness? By, because I promise you, you will pursue it. You will pursue one of those things, either a Christ-likeness and a surrender, and I'm going to have the mind of Christ, I'm going to forgive like Christ, I'm going to love like Christ, or a happiness. See, one of the things Paul is trying to get to is a differentiation. He doesn't use the word joy, but what he's really promising here is that we can have a joy. And we'll really see that in the next two weeks when he's saying that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. That if we're in Christ, God is this preserving power that he's going to keep us even in our darkest of days. And that we can have a joy. We just sang about it this morning. And at night it's dark, but the joy comes when? In the morning. And folks, that may be tomorrow morning. It may be a year from now, but ultimately, really what it's talking about is glory. That's why he goes through this process. Thank you, you were justified. He, he kind of goes through justification, and, and then he's talking about sanctification, and he says eventually he's going to turn into this glorification. Paul goes through this whole list because he says, I want you to know, this is what God's working for. It's a finished thing. In fact, that word glorification, some of you could care less about this next statement, but that word glorification was in the past tense. What does that mean? Paul is counting it as done. Is he in glory yet? Is he in heaven yet? No, he's still walking this earth. And yet he uses the past tense there. Why? Because he wants, this is how sure I am that I'm going to be glorified one day in heaven. So let's kind of wrap it up. He makes a a, a promise there that he's working all things uh, for this goodness of, of us becoming more and more like Christ. But here's the promise, guys. Here's the promise. If you really want the the practical nugget that comes out of this biblical truth, here it is. You and I are not at the whims in the winds of the world. Do you ever feel like you are? I mean, okay, man, if we don't get the right president, man, if Hillary gets in there, Guys, you think sovereign God, and again, if, if, if you're in here and you're offended by that, I apologize because I do not mix my politics with this, but, but I, I've heard it so many times. Man, this country is just doomed if this, guys, do you think sovereign God is sitting there going, man, I don't know how this election is going to try, I'm a man, if we don't get this person, man, it's got to be Ben Carson or nobody, you know. God is not sweating the next election. He's not sweating the economy. He's not sweating the things that you and I sweat. It's not because he's uncaring. It's not because he's not loving. It's not because he's not suffering. It's just the good that he's working for, he knows that he's not at the whim of every wind that comes about. 
That's good news for a believer. Because I promise you, there's times in your life, because we do have this emotional reaction. Remember, our knee-jerk reaction is sometimes philosophical, but most time emotional. Not so much theological. Most of us, when tragedy comes in our life, we don't run to the cross and we don't run to the truth to, to set us free. And because we have this emotional reaction, sometimes we believe the lie that we are at the whim. And if I lose this job, what am I going to do to feed my family? And if this happens, what's going to happen here? If the economy goes, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And all of a sudden we we get overwhelmed and and we start going, okay, God, you're going to have to fix all these whims and all these whims. God is saying, I'm sovereign over all those things. Folks, that is not to belittle the tragedies that you face, deep tragedies. Just saying, again, the the scripture is never going to make light of uh, of your tragedy. It's always going to make much of Christ never making light of of tragedy and hurt in your life, always making much of Christ. Let me end with a story. It's a biblical story out of Genesis. In fact, if you have your Bibles, Genesis 50, 20. It's a story, it's it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And uh, it's it's really the story, it's the capstone of, of Joseph's life. Remember Joseph? He was born, and his father showed him great favor and made him this coat of many colors. So much so that it, when he went to show his brothers, which was really kind of a foolish thing to do, hey, look what dad gave me. Did you, oh, you didn't get one? Ah, you didn't get one either? I'm the only one that got this coat of many colors. I mean, he kind of, you know, kind of rasped the, the, the other brothers. And, and so uh, we begin to see that Joseph uh, goes through this period of time when, I mean, when you looked at his life, folks, it does not look like a happy life. It does not look like a blessed life. He gets thrown into a pit and his brothers, his actual brothers plot to kill him. We go in a little bit more, and he's sold into slavery. He kind of makes it his way up, and he's kind of the, the head of, of a certain uh, prestigious person. And then all of a sudden, that prestigious person's wife accuses him of trying to come on to her, and so he gets thrown in jail. He's down in jail, and even that, he begins to kind of progress, and he begins to, to kind of have some fame there. And he just tells the people, well, look, when, when, when you get out, will you go tell the Pharaoh that, you know, I'm down here? They forget. Everywhere in Joseph's life, it looks... He, and we never see Joseph really kind of coloring outside the lines. We see him as being a very faithful person. And yet we see that he's not really got a lot of things in his life to be happy about. Not until Genesis 45. And in Genesis 45, there's a famine in the land. And in that famine, people are dying. And his brothers come, representing his father, and they come, and they don't know that that's their brother. They don't know Joseph is now second in control, second in command over all of Egypt. And Joseph has devised a plan of how Egypt is going to kind of make it through this famine time. And they come, and, and they go, you know, you, you may know the rest of the story. They kind of have this uh, kind of going back and forth. But finally, when it's all said and done, he restores relationship with his brothers. He's able to feed his father, and and his family is able to survive the famine. And here's what the Bible says near the end of Joseph's life and his death. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about the many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. And, and you can read that and you can say, okay, Bobby, so, so his family, you know, the, 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 as the closing credits on this movie go down, you're going, okay, his family survived. Great story. It's better than that. God had made covenant with man and said through this lineage there will be a Savior. And as he sustains that family in the midst of famine, that lineage continues. And years down the road, there comes a Savior. Was it good that they sold a brother into slavery? Was it good that they thought of murdering their brother? Was it good that there was starvation in the land? No. But even those things that were meant for evil, God worked for good. Because he had a bigger purpose. And that was your salvation and my salvation. And he sustained a family hundreds of miles away in a land that was filled with famine because he placed Joseph at the right place at the right time. Not just so that that family could live, not just for a temporary happiness, but so that covenant family, that lineage would continue into the day that Christ was born. God is always, if you're in Christ, God is always working in your life. And he's working for good. And that good is the, that, that people might see in this world a holiness in us. And they might see the completeness of Christ in us. I don't say that as a weight upon you because it's not about you and it's not about you. Again, this isn't, you know, toughen up, buttercup. This, this is, that's not biblical. It's rest in Christ. This is your promise. If you're in Christ this morning, this is your promise. Even in the darkest of nights, God is working good for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And, and Father, you made us emotional people, so it's, it's, it's not surprising that there are times when we go through greatest tragedies, Father, that we will respond emotionally. And Father, that we have to deal with that. Father, please, I, I pray, I pray, I pray this morning, Father, that, that one here, Father, not even one here, has experienced, Father, the most tragic of all life circumstances, would walk away thinking that in any way we are dismissing the hurts of this life. Father, you said that it was tragic. You said that it was, uh, Father, that would bring hurt into our lives, uh, a sense of futility and a groaning. But, Father, that's not the rest of the story. Father, I pray this morning for those that may not be in Christ, Father, if they've never trusted, put their full faith in the work of your Son for their salvation. Father, I pray that you'd open their their eyes this morning to their need and you would show them the sufficiency of Christ. Father, for those in Christ this morning, I pray that you would show them the sufficiency of a Savior who truly is ministering to them. Your very Spirit groaning pray God's will in their life. Oh, Father, we are not here to make light of human tragedy, but we are here this morning, Father, to make much of, of the life that we have in you through Christ. And Father, will you help us as we would wrestle with that? Father, we love you and we thank you for Christ. We thank you that this hope is dependent upon him and not upon us. 
and we just rest in that this morning as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.